classical rebellion. rebellion. So today's August 3rd. And before we get started... That would be the 3rd of August. The 3rd of August, 2019. On this side of the pond. And before we get too far into uh, four pieces of music each that we think need more prestige... Underrated. In 1787, I think? Yeah, no. 1776 it burned down. 1776. That was the It reopened. So La Scala reopened after the fire on August 3rd. And it reopened with a production by Solieri. Did it really? Yeah. Of all composers. So we want to pay homage to La Scala and the tradition that is there, the uh, Loginisti, is that what they're called? The people who are up in the, the galleries, the two, two stories of galleries mm-hmm. on top, the cheap seats. <laughs> Boy, they let you know what they think. Oh, they do. Sometimes they get paid to let you know what they think. Oh, yes. The clack, as it were. Click-clack. Eventually, <laughs> clack. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, it's a venerable institution. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. They are the soccer hooligans of the opera world. We need more of them. They, they are. They, yeah. they are. They, they live and die for opera, and uh, uh, they, they make it a full-contact sport sometimes. <laughs> and I'm all for it. Yeah. 3,000 seats when it first opened. It's big. What is it now? I'm not sure. I didn't look it up. Mm, I shouldn't think it would change significantly. Yeah. So, four pieces that deserve more prestige. Want me to go or you want to go? Um, I'll start. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to start, I'll, I'll start small and, and work up. Okay. Um, the, this, the student symphony, I guess you could call it a student symphony. It was an early work uh, by Hans Roth, who was a classmate of Gustav Mahler. Mm-hmm. Let's have a listen. has definite Mahlerian overtones. Yeah. The use of the trumpet in it, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the sort of, the, some of the chord changes that evoke the, the, um, the sort of primal innocence of nature, mm-hmm. that springtime feeling to it right. is, is definitely, some of those orchestral textures are definitely present in, in, that, in that, that symphony. And, it's always struck me that if 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 we ha- if we hadn't had Mahler uh, and if he lived, we, we might have had a, a very different orchestral pantheon. I mean, yeah. it might have been wrote over Mahler. It could have been. I so, like his first symphony more than I like Mahler's. Hmm. That's his personal taste. I'm not saying it has more musical merit. Right. I really don't know. And I'm not saying that Mahler like stole from Grote. I, I think he must have seen the score or possibly heard the work and he was probably influenced by it. Mm-hmm. But 
uh, he, he, whatever the influence was, he made it his own and capitalized on it, you right. know, obviously. Yeah. So. It's interesting you mentioned the trumpet because their professor was Bruckner the trumpet, which is the nickname that Wagner gave Bruckner <laughs> after Bruckner dedicated his third symphony to Wagner. <laughs> and Wagner heard it and called him Bruckner the trumpet. The trumpet. <laughs> So that's that's my first. first that would be my first selection. I yeah, mean, it needs more prestige mind. because it's not performed. It should be done more. Well, it's not a lengthy work. I think it's about twenty-five minutes no, or it's, something. It's it's got some. No, it's longer it's than that. It's longer than yeah. that. It's been a long time since I listened to it, yeah. but I remember being very impressed by it, and and it should be done more. Mm-hmm. It, it's nothing to be ashamed of, even though it's a it's a youthful work. It's definitely uh, uh, has a, a unique soundscape and uh, and is. It's heralding the dawn of something mm-hmm. that Mahler definitely lived in. Right. Yeah, he went to Brahms, Hans Roth did, and Brahms beat him up. Oh, Not really? physically, but verbally and, <laughs> and uh, musically. Because Brahms isn't really about new beginnings. No, Brahms is about new, new dimensions in Bach counterpoint. Yeah, yeah. And uh, after, soon after, that is when uh, Hans Roth committed suicide. And uh, it's easy to maybe say Brahms pushed him over the edge. That would be really dramatic. But usually that kind of explanation is not the correct explanation. No, I mean, it's, it's impossible to tell. It is. Doing an awful yeah. lot of after-the-fact biographical yeah. research. Right. Brahms. The killer. Brahms. The killer. Brahms is a fascinating guy. Brahms, B for bully. (laughs) Bach, Beethoven, and bully. (laughs) And bully. So I actually have done a, I got uh, some notes here. Uh, My first selection uh, is going to be a Requiem Mass from the classical music period. But it's not by Mozart. Plenty of prestige there. It's by, not Joseph Haydn. It's by Joseph's younger brother, Michael Haydn. The Haydn Requiem, if you like Mozart's Requiem, you will love Michael Haydn's Requiem, and it's complete. Mm. It's it's a phenomenal piece of music. Uh, It was written uh, 1772. So right in the heart. Have you sung it? I've not sung it. See, this is the thing. No one performs it. So that's why, that's why I think it needs more prestige. Oh, I think we might need to arrange yeah, something. It's, it's, I can't say it's, it's in C minor. That was one of Mozart's favorite keys. You know, we got the great C minor mass. Um, sorry, that was Beethoven's favorite key. Um, oh. <laughs> apologies. Um, yeah, but so number one for me is Michael Haydn, Requiem Mass. Give it a listen. In fact, let's take a listen.
right? I'm right, aren't I? Very impressive. Yes. I like being correct. Well, you usually are. It feels good. Except when you're wrong. That's true. You know what else feels good? To admit when you're wrong with magnanimity. <laughs> As opposed to... I was wrong. As a and it feels so good. It's a, it's a position of superiority. I like that. Magnanimity as opposed to ignominy. Yes. 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 Well, since we're going in that direction, mm -hmm. uh, I, I have I have a couple of other, other choices, but now that you mention it, yes. I would say uh, another pick of mine that would be something that is deserving of greater uh, merit and attention than it gets is pretty much anything by Jan Dismas Zelenka. 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 Well, I, I've always called okay. him Zelenka. Uh, but, I've never uh, heard it pronounced, actually. I've only read the name. Right. Um, I could be wrong. It could be Zelenka, but, but I think it's Zelenka. Um, Zelenka was a um, uh, court composer to the uh, Cardinal Elector at Dresden. Mm. And um, uh, most of his music remained in manuscript up until the early 20th century. They just never let it off the shelf. Sure. And um, and the it was never performed outside of of the court because the elector was very jealous of it. He, ah. he, and and Zelenka was also um, Bach assigned pieces by Zelenka um, uh, to his his children as counterpoint examples. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Zelenka was a was a. So he's really broke. Or is he uh, late Renaissance? Uh, I think he's he's uh, Middleborough. Oh, middle. Okay. And it, he was a bass player, and um, so he had a great sense of foundational harmony, I guess. But his counterpoint is is uh, exhaustive um, and virtuosic. I have sung his lamentation. He wrote three lamentations of Jeremiah's, presumably for a tenebrae service. Uh, I, the first one is for baritone. There's one for tenor and one for mm -hmm. soprano. I've sung the baritone one, which is a remarkable piece. In fact, there's some video on Vimeo of me actually performing really? with Ruben and the Bach. Let's, let's have a listen. Let's have a listen. Okay. sort of Hebraic sounding mm, theme. Yes, okay. And of course we're, we're in you know the book of, the book of yeah. Jeremiah's and the Lamentations. Yeah. And it's just like a bit of, of somewhat uncharacteristic ethnicity thrown, mm. like it's over a drone tone, you know, and so we get like um, three or four bars of this Hebraic, Hebraic melody. Uh -huh. Very modal sounding. And which is unique for the Baroque period. They, they 
stick to pretty diatonic, you know, yeah. harmony. And yeah. here we have something modal um, creeping in. Uh, but it's very fluid, uh, expressive music, uh, changes of tempo, changes of mood. So, I mean, the Lamentation of Jeremiah is a personal favorite, but he wrote masses, he wrote operas, uh, he wrote um, uh, motets. There's a wealth of music by uh, Zelenko, which any choral group would, uh, and, or vocal soloist, would do really well to explore. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I, he wrote uh, quite a quite a number of of, of full choral masses, okay. which um, you know if you want to throw in a highlight from one of those too, I mean yeah. it's it's good stuff. Jan Dysnesselinka, highly recommendable composer, very good, underrated. Now I my next selection is not from an underrated composer, and you know by the way it's warm today in San Diego, which uh, yeah it's not champagne so today, no champagne, it's ice water. It's not Russian water either. It's not vodka. It would be something. <laughs> no, it's it's definitely pure water. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, it, you could say this isn't an under prestigious piece either. But just because chamber music is, in my opinion, not as prestigious as it should be in general, I'm going with Dvorak's American Quartet. Very famous. Uh, I can't even remember. Oh, here we go. Let's play it. So that's 1893, uh, composer during the summer vacation. And what I like about in uh, in in Iowa was it not? Um, Is that what composed in in yeah in Iowa? Yeah, yeah. In Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, with all places <laughs> in 19th century Iowa. Is that even a state at that point? Uh, it, that's a good I question. It might have still been a territory. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> summer in Iowa, though. And he comes up with this American Quartet. So he's got the American Quartet and the New World Symphony, which is not under prestigious. Um, and I've often wondered why more American composers did not follow his lead. So he just did with America what he did. In because you have to have a lot of contrapuntal training to follow mm. that lead. And you have to also, I think, be steeped in the in the experience of the orchestral tradition to really be able to uh, to begin to organize on that scale mm -hmm. in your own mind. I mean, right. there's not a lot of people in the United States at that point who... And also, at that point, um, 
at that point, uh, American classical music was not really looking to innovate. They were very much European sure, looking. They were still looking for an example mm -hmm. from Europe. And things were changing. They were changing fast. And so yeah. they were definitely not ahead of that curve. Right. So it's not surprising that Dvorak's work in that way couldn't really be capitalized on. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that way, in, if you're looking for an explanation for me, right. that's what I would give. And that, I'll give an example of that in a minute too, but uh, sure. there's a piece that deserves more attention than it gets. Right, yeah. And, but it's just something that so many composers of other nationalities have done so well, and that's incorporate the tunes that everybody knows into their symphonic works as the kernels, which Tchaikovsky's fourth is a great example with this little tune that every Russian child knows. Right, right. It's right. the row, row your boat, Yankee doodle dandy, you know, song of Russia. And Dvorak tried to do that. He tried to use Negro and what he called Negro and Native American influences in his music. And he's, as far as I can tell, the only one who's done it successfully. Maybe you can count Gershwin. I don't know. If they're what is more of a jazz influence and so maybe in a roundabout way but he's not directly trying to tap into the American sound right we have to wait a long time for Copeland well you know kind of becomes I'll attach this reference to to this piece mm -hmm. but by by way of what I was talking about um, this could be considered a piece that, that doesn't get as much attention as it is as it deserves but for a different reason which is uh, Scott Joplin's opera Tremonitia mm. um, it's an, it is a naive work in some ways. In other ways, it's not. It's, it's not, Joplin wasn't a great librettist. Um, he wrote plenty of music, but he, he, he had a hard time fleshing out a full, you know, three-act opera. So it's, it's a little asymmetrical. The, the, the second act is much shorter than the first, and it's, but what, as as scholarship has uh, on this piece has uh, and, and his, historiography has panned out, little little bits of tid, tidbits of information have come to light. One of which is that it wasn't exactly ignored. Um, hmm. It was entered and considered uh, in the year that it was written and, and published for as late as 1917 for a major a, a opera operatic award for new works. The the winner was Charles Tomlinson Griffiths. He's an, an American composer okay. of the New England School. Um, mm -hmm. And, but the reviewer for um, Etude, I think, in reviewing the comic, said, Mr. Joplin has here written the first truly American opera. This is not an opera about knights and castles and kings right. uh -huh. and, and European mythology. This is Wagnerism. Pro, yeah, proto-Wagnerism. Yeah. This is an object, an opera on an American subject, the first one we can identify, hmm. and this deserves recognition. It does. And and but there again, you see, it took somebody coming from outside to create the American right. Indian, as it were, uh, the um, uh, sort of school in the middle in the Midwest to try and people like Cadman and. Uh, Horatio Parker and, and people like that were, were trying to cultivate this this ethos after Dvorak did it. Right. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But there's so much in the American Quartet. I remember. It is real 
strict oh, pentatonic music. It's beautiful stuff, yeah. and the the counterpoint is outstanding. I remember yeah. when um, when I was at San Diego State uh, a decade and a half ago, um, there was a, a a string quartet, the Hyperion Quartet. If you guys are out there listening by any chance, to create you know props to you. Uh, there was a young quartet that they was in residence for a year at San Diego State, a year or two. And I remember them playing the American Quartet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, they just bounced out of their seats doing it. They were yeah. absolutely fantastic. And I remember thinking, what wonderful music this is. It's, it's wonderful <laughs> it's music. It's spectacular. Yeah. It yeah, really it, is. It deserves a place, and maybe it does have a place amongst string quartet musicians of prestige. Right. Well, but for a general listener, it's it kind of goes not in one year and out the end. It doesn't even get in the first year. No, and most people don't know what it is or have never heard it. But that's partly a function of unless you're a, a top flight touring string quartet, you're not going to play it because it's pretty True. hard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty damn hard. Yeah. So was that your third? No, opera? no. Okay. I was just right, I was great. using that to, gotcha. to support okay. in support of your argument. Why didn't this yeah. take off? Yeah, I gotcha. Okay. In the Midwest. Uh, my third, I'm actually torn because I'm doing this off the top of my head. Um, See, here's the problem with what we're doing, real quick. Why are you thinking? Mm. What I basic, so I sent John, you know, well, we, we're, we're doing Saturday afternoon. Usually we're on Thursday night, um, but John had rehearsal. He's a working musician or something. Um, I sent you some topics, but you've had a busy week. I didn't actually see it until last oh, night. Oh, you did? Okay, <laughs> yeah. So I sent some topics, and we're having to kind of try to do two episodes here because I'm going to be at the uh, AXO conference, the Association of California Symphony Orchestras, next week. So we won't be able to really meet. As opposed week. to OXO, which is a beef extract. Oh, is Like a cup of right. OXO. Mmm, delicious. Um, so what, but what I, I realized this today, what this kind of is, is um, eternal homework. No, it's true. It's, it's, <laughs> it's actually good work. Um, like, we've assigned ourselves homework for the rest of however long we do this. Because we have a lot of well, that's true. indigenous knowledge, let's call it. Yeah. But I don't want to misspeak. I don't want to misguide no, of course anyone. Not. Of course so, not. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really, um, I'm tempted to bring in um, Amy Beach, ah. um, Mrs. H.H.A. Mm-hmm. Beach, as she preferred to be known, out of uh, gratitude, gratitudinous homage to her husband who made her career possible. Um, uh, she wrote um, some wonderful chamber music, and, and the piano concerto is very solid. Yeah. Um, I want to mention a piano quintet, though, by, I, I believe it's Charles Cadman. Yes, I, I, I was correct about that, Charles Wakefield. So we have a little blank spot there. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I was correct. It was Charles Wakefield Cadman's piano, uh, piano quintet in G minor, mm-hmm. uh, 1937, actually. Okay. Uh, but he was active from the, from the turn of the century. And uh, it's quite a nice piece, but un- unfortunately, uh, so far as I can tell, the, um, uh, the, the recording of it has been taken, that I heard, has been taken down off YouTube. So I think I'll go with Mrs. H.H.A. Beach. Okay. Uh, and the piano concerto. That's a dynamite mm-hmm. piece. But I, I, I think you should mention Cadman. You know, I think yeah, we'll keep I think Cadman. you should leave that in because yeah. 
Um, it's it's damn good music. Yeah. But Amy Beach um, is sort of, I guess, the uh, the American um, Daymethyl Smythe. Yeah. You know, uh, and she was a force to be reckoned with. It's mm -hmm. good stuff. Yeah. Quite frankly, the orchestral parts are pretty bland. Exactly. I mean, he was a piano composer. Yeah. You, you, he was supposed to be an opera composer. Yes. In Polish? Yes, he was supposed to write the great Polish opera. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And then early on, early on. He was I don't know. And then circumstances, politics, wars, travel, he ended up being Chopin. Hmm. Well, we were, I mean, and he was excellent at being Chopin, yeah. just as George Gershwin was excellent at being George Gershwin in the yeah. eyes of Maurice Ravel. You're better off being a first-rate Gershwin than a second-rate Ravel. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, her her, orchestra, her orchestration is great. Yeah. It's rich, it's varied, It's um, it's um, and it's dynamic, it's a lot of fun. And there's something that bothers me. Was it 2017? Let's check real quick. Either 2017, I think it was 2017, was her 150th. Yes, and nothing appeared. Not one God-blessed thing appeared. There was no 
celebrate like Bernstein. Good lord, they can't stop playing Leonard Bernstein and, in our orchestra. And you know what? I don't care anymore. I went to I went to the thing with Dudamel up there at the Hollywood Bowl, the Bernstein Bernstein Centenary concert. You know, and yeah. and and I went to I I think I heard three Bernstein Symphony, uh, or Bernstein Centennial recital uh, concerts, and nobody played the Candied Overture. <laughs> I'm funny. sorry, but it's, it's the, best, the best thing he it's wrote. It's the best thing he wrote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just well, the best and thing he wrote. Like the end. I love that. Too. Anyway, um, yeah, but the, the orchestra is, has more sparkle to it yeah. than anything else he ever wrote. Mm-hmm. And yeah. but the, we anyway, went. That, we that went, was an injustice. We went balls deep with Bernstein, Stein. I and, always say it right. And nothing. Nothing for Mrs. Beach. I mean, not a mention. I remember when you, you pointed that out to me. I didn't realize it myself. Yeah. And, and, and it was at the end of the season. And it's like, that's just wrong. It's wrong. But this, again, gets back to programming for symphonies as opposed to and, and, and opera companies. You know, that they, it's a question of what they think they have to be able to sell. But and here's the thing that could cap, they could have capitalized on. And I, I don't want to get political. This is, I believe, cultural, not political. But if they had done their 150, Amy Beach, it would have coincided almost exactly with the hashtag MeToo movement. No. And they would have looked like culturally relevant organizations. But, but were they? No, they weren't. They weren't. They, they, Un- it's they it's failed. stunning to me. They failed signally. <laughs> really? I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's an absolute failure. Yeah. Yeah, because it wasn't too long after that that the whole Harvey Wine right was being quite on that. Yeah. But I mean, the, but you know, they missed a golden opportunity, yeah. and an injustice was done to a very worthwhile American composer. Yeah, yeah I, I'm in agreement. All right, number four for you. Number four for me. Symphony number two, by. What? There's a couple symphony number twos actually that could use a little more prestige. I know, but I saw your notes. But including when we heard this last season, Von Williams Symphony Number no. Two could use some more prestige. The London, the London Symphony. Yeah, yeah, that's dynamite. We heard it was fantastic, wasn't it? Oh, it was one, and, of, the, uh, one of the best things I've ever heard. Yeah. But that's not the number two I'm talking of. Um, the number two of which I speak is Borodin's Symphony Number no. Two. One of my favorites. Let's take a listen to just the opening bars. <laughs> century whiskers that, that's is got, what those are. That, that's got hair all over it. Yeah. yeah. Although of the Russian composers at the time, Borodin is the least bearded. He kind of did the the mustache. He didn't do the the full uh, the full well, send it's, there. It's not bad for a chemist. It's true. Yeah. He was a chemist. Amateur musician. Pretty darn good amateur. But speaking of the American sound that Oh well the, no, no, the, no, the conclusion. The, the, yeah. the last movement <laughs> Which let's you, take a listen. Let's take well, a listen. Yes. Now, I, but I want you to I want you to picture something as you listen. I want you to think about the uh, the magnificent the, seven. <laughs> yeah, well, the magnificent seven. Imagine yourself on um, uh, on an open plain 
with the Grand Teton Mountains. Yes. You know, yeah, with spring great. with spring snow still on the top, and imagine a group of horsemen. American Western horsemen coming right over that hill into your face because that's what this sounds like. Yeah. I mean, it. I. You'll struggle to find a more ev American Western evocative theme in orchestral yeah. music. Maybe the Magnificent Seven is the only one that is that evocative. Yeah. Listen to this. Tetons or in Mongolia, but yeah. the, that's American, buddy. Yeah. It, it, that's, it, that's America, buddy. It's not, I don't believe Borodin ever went came to America. No? I'm sure not. I'm sure he was trying to evoke the the energetic horseback life of the yeah. Asian Central Asian steppe, but boy, does that translate. Yeah. I love it. I'd love to see somebody make a Western film and use that for, uh, for, for, the, for the theme. Oh, for movie. sure. What? Just, Here's the thing. The scared so dun da 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 dun da 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 dee dun da 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 I'm gesticulating as in kismet. Oh well, yes. Gesticulate. So the the number two is in popular culture in the musical kismet. Sure. How kill? Well, all of the themes in kismet are recording. You know, closest pages in a book. Yeah. Or no, and this is my beloved. Sorry, and this is my beloved. Um. Which is a genius. Yeah. But I mean, Stranger it just goes to show. is Steps of Central Asia. You know, that, that's one of my guilty pleasures. I was thinking about that the other Kismet. day. No, no, no. Oh. The, the, in the Steps of Central Asia. Ah. I mean, it's such a simple piece, but it is so atmospheric. It is. So atmospheric. Yeah. It's the way the, you know, the, 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 the horizon of the step comes a little bit closer with the approach of the caravan and as they recede into the distance the yeah. vast and you know yeah, lonely grasses stretch far away yeah. to paraphrase it's very it, it never goes above what, no so forte maybe there's no I think it gets to forte but only briefly it, yeah. it immediately starts to recede yeah but it, it's just uh, it's it's wonderful music Borodin benefited in uh, I think after his death I don't know how many of his pieces Rimsky-Korsakov may have touched up Hmm. But whatever Rimsky brought to it, I mean, he certainly put Prince Igor back to, to fully together. It was only about two-thirds complete with sketches for the rest. And he finished it. He's like, we have to finish it now. Scholars can, can deal with it in the future, but mm -hmm. this has to be put together now because we're here on the spot, and otherwise it'll get lost. Right. And so he did. Thank you, Rimsky-Korsakov. But the core Rimsky, of it is the genius really, yeah. of Borodin's no. melodic genius. I mean, the Rimsky-Korsakov is an unsung hero. In my opinion, well, I think all so. the orchestrating he did of pieces that 
you know. he's, he saved he the, the entire overture of of, of Prince Igor. Um, he, he he wrote down from memory. He he he'd, he'd, he'd only he'd heard it. Um, um, uh, uh, he'd heard him play it. Mm-hmm. And um, no, I take that back. It wasn't Rimsky. It was Glazunov. Uh, right. Glazunov yeah. had heard it, and he he re- he remembered. He had a very a, a very prodigious memory. Mm-hmm. And but Borodin had not written down a word of it, so mm-hmm. a, a, a note of it. And so he's like, "This is this is the overture that he played." Right. And okay. um, mm-hmm. but Rimsky, no, Rimsky Korsakov uh, saved that opera. Yeah. And yeah. Borodin is a is is I think an an. an an overlooked, mm-hmm. overlooked composer. Yeah. yeah, his string quartet is got that one. I don't know. Bangles, da 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 da. More kismet. That's from this string quartet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Borkin is fantastic. Hmm. No, I like that choice. The symphony number no. two is just magnificent. It is. It's just magnificent, it is. and it's also a brass player's holiday. And again, I don't need to hear Brahms Symphony Number no. Two for the fourth <laughs> time. I'd rather hear, like we got Vaughn Williams last year. Finally, oh, that was magnificent. Why don't we have? Well, maybe they did Borodin, and I missed it. That's possible because I haven't made every single concert at San Diego Symphony. Well, I have a sneaking suspicion that they did. We'll have to check on that for the end of yeah. the show. Yeah, but um, I could hear it again. Oh, I would always hear it again. Yeah. If you've never listened to it, listen to it. Okay, so my my fifth choice. <laughs> is um, you, it's a quandary actually, but um, there are two pieces that on on a similar scale that I could name. One of which is the Gura Leader by uh, mm. Schoenberg. Um, yeah, it's a Titanic scale, a, a po- huge post-romantic Titanic orchestra of about 140 or 50, and a 600 voice chorus. Uh, it's mammoth, and I've heard it live at the proms. And, ah, okay. You know, it, Shostakovich's, I mean, uh, uh, Schoenberg's uh, indulgence of, of his 12 tone, you know, sort of philosophical music making is a lot easier to take when you've heard uh, the Gura Leader because it is po- virtuosic post romanticism. Yeah. Absolute, like geni- absolute genius. Yeah. On the largest scale, yeah. and he's like, "Okay, well, if you can do that, do go fool you around, yeah. you know." But thank you. Um, however, I th- I think for my for the piece that I would really say because I think more people know that than than the piece that I'm going to mention, but it's on a similar scale. Can anybody out there guess what I'm going to say? That's right. It's the Symphony Number no. One by William Havergal Bryan, the oh. Gothic. Um, let's take a listen. Let's take a listen which, to the let's take a listen to the part? opening. The opening. Okay.
So it starts out very vigorously, and then it's tempting to say it breaks down. It doesn't really break down. It divides off into subsidiary portions. There, the, there are different elements of the orchestra playing. It's very Ivesian in that way. Hmm. He has different portions doing different things hey, in different meters. Charles Ives. We're going <laughs> to... I, I like old Flinty Ives. I just don't I like it. Do. I, 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 and you know who else I don't like? I like a man people who worship Ives. No, oh I, my I gosh. like a man who can who can go across the snowy fields to his neighbor's house to hear the Boston Symphony uh, on the radio yeah. premiere one okay. of his symphonies. Listen to the radio like this, not say a word, and then, and then an insurance at, policy at the, at the end say, hmm. and get up and leave, yeah. and go home, uh, <laughs> and then by, but on his way out say. By the way, have you considered whole life? Oh, he was he he was a, a dedicated insurance man. Well, he was that's what made his money. But back to yeah, back to Havergal Bryan. William Havergal Bryan had an epic life from 1876 to 1974, and he was definitely a part of the uh, of the pre Edward the Edwardian um, uh, critical establishment, as well as writing music with his own peculiar cadential stamp on it, some of his own peculiar chordal mannerisms. Mm -hmm. He was a unique composer, but he wrote an opera, he wrote overtures, he wrote concert overtures, he, he, but for his, and he wrote a lot of reviews. He was a respected reviewer. But he was of the older generation. He was too old to fight in World War I. Wow. And the world that he was promoting went up in flames in World War I. And so following sure the war, he turned to orchestral composition and he felt a need to summarize and to, to basically memorialize his generation. And so the Symphony Number no. One is even larger than uh, takes larger forces even than the um, than the Gura Leader. It's an, an orchestra of almost two hundred. It's uh, a chorus of basically about eight, eight six or eight hundred. It's huge, mm -hmm. vast. Right. It, it didn't get recorded. Everybody looked at it, and you know, nobody could think. Well. Adrian Bolt per performed it in the proms once in the early 1960s, and that was its its only public uh, airing until it got recorded under the auspices of the Rex Foundation, which was uh, organized by Phil Lesh of the Grateful Dead, hmm. um, to record an underknown um, okay. uh, orchestral works. And this was the first thing they recorded. And with the Bratislava Philharmonic, and went to Eastern Europe after the wall came down. They arranged for this, this, or actually, I think it was just before the wall came down. But Glasnost mm. had happened, and so you know who was from Bratislava? The two wild and crazy guys. <laughs> well, two wild and the crazy guys. Next time, I'll try five of them. Anyway. Um, uh, they got it recorded, and it's been recorded several times and performed at the at the proms now. And it it is more than the sum of its parts. If you listen to the oh, end, because the, the second half is a vast te deum, ah. uh, the Ambrosian hymn, um, and he was proclaiming his faith in the shattered world that he knew he was never going to see again. Right but that he still felt had something to offer to the future. Hmm. And uh, it's, um, it's a staggering work, and it's very, very deeply touching if you give it its, its, its give it time and, and listen to the end and 
um, and just give the composer his head, as it were, and let him have his say, it's well worth the effort. Okay. It's very deeply touching when you put it in its historical context. Now, he went on to write, like, I don't know, 25 other symphonies, some of which by the end were 10 minutes long, and they're very modern, very uh, avant-garde. Avant um, but if you can put together something like the Gothic, um, more power to you, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. So that was your fourth. That's my. No, that was my fourth. Yeah. I'm only doing four. Okay. Oh, yeah. well, then that's my fourth. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, my fourth kind of fits right in there because it's Edward Elgar's Allegro and Introduction for Strings. excessively complex about that, but what a wonderful Oh my piece. gosh, it's so much fun. It's almost a guilty pleasure. It's close. It's yeah. close. It's just a pleasure, though. I feel no guilt. If you, if, you, if you had to listen to one piece, I think, that would really sum up Elgar in a, in a, a wide variety of his facets, it's that piece. Mm. Yeah, because all of many of his 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 gestures are in it. His, his um, uh, sort of rhythmic. Um, yeah, there's a lot of rhythmic, rhythmic, rhythmic gestures. His his, his his some of his chord changes. I love it. How did you get to know it? I got to know it accidentally. <laughs> um, first of all, this is how much it's lacking in prestige. It doesn't have a Wikipedia page. Really. Yeah, if you can believe that. My first year of college, I took music theory. I don't remember much. Uh, I know there are rules to voice leading, but I can't tell you what they are. I know there's such a thing as a French sixth, and it's probably nicer than a German sixth. <laughs> <laughs> um, the theory teacher said he thought there was nothing more beautiful ever composed than Vaughn Williams' The Lark Ascending. So I thought, Ah, I will go find a recording of Von Williams' The Lark Ascending because I couldn't just go on YouTube or Spotify. Right, right. There was this actually was, no internet this was in, at, that point, this, at that point. This was, you were on the GI Bill after World War II? Yes, right? I was. Yeah. I was on the GI Bill. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I went and I uh, did a little research and there was a new recording out and it was mid-range price of CD, which is nine ninety nine. 
So $6.99, 99 dollars $14.99. Or $18.99 if it was a Hyperion. That's right. So that at the time. And it was the London Chamber Orchestra with Leonard Warren Green. I think Lin well, I can't remember if Leonard's the right person. Christopher Warren Green. Okay. And no conductor. And it was English string music, even though Black Ascending has some woodwinds. And so I got it. And the first piece on that album is the Allegro and Introduction for Strings. <laughs> and I like it more than the Lark Ascending. I'll skip the Lark Ascending now. <laughs> yeah. But that's how I, I got to know it. And that's been, that was 1991. That's been a while. That, that, that's a, and I would say that's an integral part of my personal yeah. soundtrack. My life soundtrack is yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is. Mm -hmm. I've listened to it at least, I don't know, five, ten times a year, not more. Yeah, it's it's, yeah. I, but it does not. It's lacking prestige. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to have a a, a, a classical rebellion episode about personal soundtracks. We do. That's that's a really good topic. Yeah. Yeah, those um, watershed moments and and well, yes, and also, but but uh, like you said, discs that you have acquired, records that you've acquired, and you remember when where you got them mm -hmm. and what they have become to mean to you, yeah, um, and the stories attached to them. Because yeah, I I, I can I, I can remember uh, there's an awful lot of you know favorite discs, favorite records, even favorite tapes, yeah, are are old friends, and that's the beauty, in my opinion, of being a classical music and an opera fan, is there's several layers to the fandom. Because you can not just be a fan of the composition, you can then be a fan of the conductor, and then a fan, in the case of opera, the singers, or perhaps the violin soloist or piano soloist in the concerto. Mm -hmm. And then you can be a fan of that recording's place in the history of recordings. Yeah, because yeah, classical music, this is not unknown information to classical music lovers, but maybe to a broader audience, which hopefully, and no one's listening from the broader audience. <laughs> classical music has always been the industry that drove the recording industry forward in technology. That's true. Stereo electric mics are developed for classical music. Right. The first great recording artist legend is Enrique Caruso. Enrico. Enrico. Did I say Enrique? <laughs> yeah, you said Enrique. <laughs> you're, thinking of Enrique you're thinking of Enrique Toral. Maybe. Yeah. So, or Enrique Granados. Yeah. And then stereo comes because of classical music, because they want to capture the orchestra. The Beatles don't need stereo for you to capture the Beatles. <laughs> as wonderful as, and as much as I love the Beatles. And the very first CD ever pressed was Richard Strauss's Ein, uh, Ein oh, Alpine Oh, Symphony. the Alpine Symphony. Yes. Very first one. Really? And the first opera was, Mag was Magic Flute, I believe. Hmm. And it was Foncarian who pushed those forward with Sony and Philips and actually made them develop them sooner than they wanted to because he wanted to record everything over again in digital quality. You know, I... Yeah... No, I, I agree. I was just suddenly yeah. just sparked off another memory. My first CD player was a in 1980. Uh, when, when was it? 80, 80 Okay. Five. You paid some money for that. Yeah, I did. I paid about three hundred bucks for yeah. it. I think 
And it was a it was we a, should a, do the math on that shelf top Sony CDP two hundred. It was the second shelf top series, hmm. and it was silver. You know, about like that had the tray one tray that comes out. Yeah. And I, I still to this day I, I think that was the best sounding one that I ever had yeah, that I've ever had. Yeah, I pulled all my graduation money and bought a CD player. My graduation from high school money. Yeah. Yeah, and all my friends were like, "Whoa, you had enough to get a CD player? <laughs> like, <laughs> what a what a what a change, man! It was huge. Like now I paid." Whatever but I never got rid of my records. I've, mm. I've always had, I've always, I've never lived anywhere where I didn't have 78s, LPs, um, tapes, CDs, um, and even mini discs, yeah. you know, in the house. I, I, I do very little listening on YouTube. I, yeah. I really do. I still to this day, I want to see words in front of me. I yeah. want, I want liner notes. That I can that are big enough to read. Yeah, see, um, that's the big difference between you and me at this point because I basically gave my recording collection away. Yeah, I, I wasn't using it. I'm never going to be able to do that because I like, you know. Also, here's the thing: what if the electricity goes out? You know. Well, you, well, well you can hand crank it. Yeah, well, if I have to. <laughs> anyway, we're getting away from the subject. Yeah. Introduction to Allegro yeah. and favorite CDs. That's that's coming up on Classical Rebellion. Yeah. Well, let's cut this one. Okay, that's yeah. coming up on. Classical